Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 412. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 412. Our first sponsor spotlight this week is Association of Specialty Cutflower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cutflower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with Megan Williams of Gilsom Gardens, based in Gilsom, New Hampshire. Listen for my conversation with Megan in the second portion of this episode. In October of 2014, I took a trip to New York City, where I made the editorial rounds to introduce Slow Flowers to members of the media. Remember, the online directory launched earlier that year. At each of these meetings, I unveiled the first of what has become an annual report now called the Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast. And then, of course, as I love to do whenever I travel, I gathered with a group of Slow Flowers members to meet them, hear about their journeys, learn what encourages and even challenges each of them in their floral enterprise. The woman who generously helped me find a location for this gathering and who brought beautiful flowers to the first ever New York area Slow Flowers meetup was Molly Oliver Culver, today's guest. A small dynamic group of florists and growers joined us that night, and after the party wrapped, Molly agreed to stay for an interview for the Slow Flowers podcast. We sat in the rather dark, brick-lined upstairs room of a Brooklyn eatery and recorded the conversation, which you can hear from the Slow Flowers podcast archives, episode 172, which aired December 17th, 2014. Well, today we're catching up with Molly, and I'm so pleased that she has returned to talk about the changes in the local floral landscape in New York and Brooklyn nearly five years later. This is where most of her clients' wedding ceremonies take place, and she'll also talk about the surrounding areas such as Hudson Valley, further upstate New York, and Long Island, where most of the local flowers for Molly's designs are grown. So much has happened in five years, and it's so encouraging. I'm excited to share this conversation with someone I consider a slow flowers pioneer and valuable friend. Here's more about Molly and Molly Oliver Flowers. Molly Oliver Flowers is a sustainable floral design company founded in 2011 by farmer educator Molly Oliver Culver. Molly Oliver Flowers was named as one of five wedding professionals using sustainable practices 
by Brides.com and was featured on the Best Sustainable Florist list in New York City by EcoCult. Molly writes this on her About page of her website. A desire to help grow social justice and care for our beautiful planet led me to community organizing around food justice, then to rural organic farming, and eventually to education and flowers. I'm proud to say I've helped to nurture soil and have grown my own food and flowers on my own and with others for the past 15 years. I love that floral design allows me to meet fun, loving, and mindful clients and connect them with seasonal flora and our local flower, herb, perennial, and foliage farmers. I've had many lives in my 38 years. Audrey Hepburn, New York City obsessed teenager, literature major, novice journalist, and ESL instructor in Santiago, Chile, urban farming educator, and farmer's market manager, community garden outreach coordinator, compost educator, urban farm manager, and now a business owner and floral designer. Throughout these many experiences, the connective tissue has always been people, soil, and plants. At core, I care deeply about equity, inclusion, sustainability, and loving kindness, and work to help these values emanate through my business. About her design style, Molly says, I continue to be deeply inspired by all of the local blooms and foliages, from cultivated to wild and foraged, that any given season has to offer. Our region's climate and four-season evolution offers something just right for every occasion, all year round. I am interested and inspired by my clients' vision, and whenever they are needing guidance, I'm happy to share my love of wild, natural designs. In other words, I love to bring your vision to life using the gorgeous product we have available locally. Why local? I love to connect my clients with locally grown flowers, to share the fun of learning about what's in season at the time of their event, and to create gorgeous arrangements that evoke time, place, mood, and my clients' individual style. I source 90 to 100% of the flowers we use within 200 miles of New York City, from both regional and urban farms. An organic grower of 10 plus years myself, I love supporting the talented community of dedicated farmers who grow an incredible diversity of beautiful flowers cut just days or even hours before and delivered at peak quality to me in the city. Collaborating with these new growers to share experiences, discuss trending varieties and colors, and celebrate our successes is one of the most exciting aspects of this work. In the studio and for her events, Molly puts a priority on waste reduction and composting. She has shared a list of the many ways it's possible to do this, and I'll include it in today's show notes for you to check out. And I hope add some of Molly's tips to your practice. Check out photos of Molly, her design projects, and the florals she creates for urban weddings and events in today's show notes at DebraPrinzing.com. I'll also share links to her social places so you can find and follow this wonderfully inspiring creative floral artist. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am so thrilled today to have a return guest, Molly Culver of Molly Oliver Flowers based in Brooklyn. Hi, Molly. Hey, Deborah. Thanks for jumping on the line with me. Too bad we're not together, but we're doing this over Skype, just so everyone knows. Uh, that's how technology hey. works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a good thing. So I asked... I asked you to come back on the podcast and I went and looked at when you were last a guest or the, the only time you've been a guest. And it was December of 2014, which is pretty mm -hmm. mind blowing that we've known each other that long and that 
Uh, you've done a lot in those last four and a half years, and I want to hear what, what you've been up to and also share with the listeners. So um, I think when, when we met, you, I'll just give you a thanks publicly. You put together a wonderful, um, helped me put together kind of a gathering, a meetup for people in the New York area who are farmers and florists. And remember we met at that really cool bar in Brooklyn that had a brick walls and the upstairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember 61 Local. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was it called? Um, 61 Local. Okay. And they were like clients of yours, right? They were a client of the farm that I was managing at the time, the youth farm. Got yeah, it. They, um, they were one of our very first purchasers of flowers that we were growing. And in general, they're just an, uh, a great spot, totally committed to local purchasing, beer, mm. food, everything you can think of. Yeah, that was really, yeah. really special. And I thank you so much for being such an early supporter of Slow Flowers. Um, but a lot has happened. So give us sort of a snapshot yeah. of Molly Oliver Flowers. And, and you know, what does your business look like today? I know, I know a lot has changed for you. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast again. It's always really inspiring talking to you. Um, and you've also been so busy and so committed to this for so many years. Um, and for me, that's been just so helpful and so important mm, mm. in many ways to have somebody kind of bringing everybody together, um, congregating us and helping us meet each other and really just helping to push this movement forward. So I know I feel deeply grateful to you and I know others do as well. Oh. So thank you. And congratulations on just wrapping the summit. Well, you know, I'm going to make you come next year. So we'll have to talk about that at the end of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So So I can fill you in on sort of where Molly Oliver Flowers is at. Um, Well, I guess I could start by just saying, you know, I've had a personal change in my life, which is that I transitioned off of farming or managing the youth farm um, earlier this year. So I had been um, sort of marrying both growing food and flowers and teaching adults about sustainable growing techniques with running and operating my own business, Molly Oliver Flowers, for the past five years, I guess, um, or eight years. I lose track. Well, you were, when I met, when I met you, you were, you were farming uh, at two locations, I think, right? The youth farm. And then you had a, another farm you were co-farming with, uh, with Deborah, is that right, or was that a what? No, bit? No, nope, just the youth farm. Okay. And Deborah was managing a, a separate um, farm space in Brooklyn, and we were collaborating together to do events. Um, that started around 2011, 2012, mm. and um, she sort of stepped back from uh, co-running Molly Oliver Flowers. She actually had a full-time job, whereas I was working part-time as a manager of an urban farm. So for me, um, finding other sources of income was paramount and, um, the sort of evolution into floral design was really just a natural outgrowth of being a flower farmer and being a huge proponent of supporting local farmers, um, and having sort of an itch for creativity and kind of putting those things together. So, I had been, you know, farming during the week and teaching during the week and doing events on the weekends for many years. Um, 
I think to the detriment of my own health and <laughs> many relationships. <laughs> oh, I'm sure your friends and family probably just thought, well, that's, it's summer. We're not going to see her. I mean, it just nose to the yeah. grindstone. Yeah. And that's a common, that's a common experience for people who do seasonal work for sure. But um, a common reaction to people seeing me do what I was doing was like, I don't know how you do this. <laughs> you know, a lot of the people that came to work for me at Molly Oliver were people that I had trained in farming. And so they sort of knew both sides of my life. And when you're managing land and you're taking care of plants and you're in this intense relationship, caring for them, which is 24 seven, you know, you wake up, the first thing you think about is irrigation and <laughs> You look at the weather and you plan your day, but you're also worrying and thinking and caring about people planning their workshops and making sure they have the right resources and really trying to create a positive learning experience for them. That's a lot of caring and it's a lot of output. Mm -hmm. And in sort of stepping away from the farm this year, which has been hard, um, also I've just gotten to reflect more on how I need to take care of myself and slowing down um, in that regard has allowed me to certainly focus a lot of my energy back towards the floral design business. Um, and also just doing basic stuff like getting real exercise and, um, taking little breaks where I can get them and just spending more quality time with people. So it's been a welcome change in that sense. Um, and you know, also a challenging one. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be married to a piece of land and to a community like that. And, um, I love our early morning harvests and being outside, you know, that stuff. So I'm just finding new ways to kind of, um, enrich my life in those ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's possible I could go back to farming in some way, but for the time being, I'm really focused on Molly Oliver flowers this year. And, um, we are doing, you know, the same types of events. We mostly do weddings. We, we try to book more and more, um, corporate gigs and we're lucky to have great partners, um, in certain venues who will call upon us when they, you know, have a client that is looking for someone who really wants to focus on reducing waste through the process. And so we've been getting more gigs like that, but by and large, like our bread and butter is, you know, small to medium sized weddings. Um, average of 100 to 120 people and um, mostly clients based here in New York City, mostly in Brooklyn. Mm. So and, uh, where are yeah. the like where are the venues that the, m most of these weddings are taking place? Oh, um, well, there's, there's a good handful of tried and true Brooklyn wedding venues. Um, I guess we probably frequent a lot of the same ones that many of the other floral designers in Brooklyn frequent. So I guess just to shout out a few, um, the Brooklyn winery, which is in Williamsburg, uh, which is a wine bar, but also a wine maker. They make wine, wow. um, on site. Um, they don't grow grapes. They, in, they bring in grapes and then they produce their own wines, but they have a beautiful venue space. And we have had a long little partnership with the Brooklyn winery. And so we do a good chunk of our events, um, with clients who are booking weddings, at the Brooklyn winery. Um, we also, you know, we're on recommended vendor lists at places like the Brooklyn Grange, of course, where we did the slow flowers dinner. Um, oh my God. My mind is blown at that. 
beautiful evening, Molly. And I, I'm going to share a photo or two of the rooftop field to vase farm to table slow flowers dinner that you designed. It was it was magical. But they that's a venue as well well as a farm, right? Yep, that is a fully functioning production farm and an event space. Um, mm. So we do weddings up there and also they're doing more and more um, hosting of corporate groups, you know, getting them out for, I don't know, like, you know, touching soil, <laughs> right? Well, touching soil and plant dyeing and, and just all kinds mm. of things. We also tend to do um, maybe one or two workshops a year at Brooklyn Grange in floral design. Actually don't have one on the calendar this year for floral design. Um, but we will be collaborating on an event later this year, which I can tell you more about um, at some point. Okay. Uh, before we wrap, before we wrap up, I want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, what else? The Green Building and Five Hundred One Union. That's um, those are two really popular venues. They're both based in Gowanus and they're run by the Gowanus Hospitality Group, I believe. I hope mm -hmm. I'm not misquoting that. It could be Starling on Bond or a combination of the two. <laughs> I guess I was just trying to get a picture of, you know, it's, you think of Brooklyn as super urban, but there are still spacious places where you could have a wedding for 125 people and there could be an indoor outdoor space. And it's just, I just think maybe if you don't, for me, I don't frequent the area. So it's just hard for me to imagine that there's, there is space for larger open air events. Um, it's not all densely developed. Yeah, you can have, there's a lot of Roth spaces um, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. especially, but also loft spaces in Manhattan people use. And we, we're really big fans of people who are coming up with, you know, creative and personal ideas for their weddings. We had a, a wedding, I think, in 2015 in the back of a tattoo parlor. <laughs> we, um, Love it. We have really done a small wedding at the Union Square Green Market. Um, oh, Wow. An old friend who met the woman um, of his dreams, I guess, uh, working at the at the Union Square Green Market. They kind of fell in love meeting as people who were representing different farms there and then you know, wanted to have their wedding in the midst of the market and essentially like the midst of the city. So we we were happy to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. there's all kinds of weddings that happen in New York. Yeah. That's neat. And for you... Um, I'm sure, depending on the size of the wedding, you're bringing in freelancers or you don't really have a staff. It's kind of um, ebbs and flows or expands and, and decreases depending on the scale of the event, right? Exactly. Yeah. At this point, I am still um, really just working with um, independent consultants or contractors, um, freelance designers. Um, and many of them I've been working with a long time. I have been working and trying to see how I can scale the business to be able to hire a part-time employee. Um, but I haven't quite gotten there. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what gets tough in the design business. <laughs> well, is it? Yeah. I mean, what does get tough? First of all, do you have a, a dedicated space, Molly? I can't remember where, where you're housed right now. I do. I have been at the same, it's a sort of working studio space. So it's in um, a large industrial building that a lot of different artists and manufacturers are working out of. So um, it's nice. It's in Gowanus. Um, and I have been there for three years, I guess. And mm -hmm. um, I actually share a 600 
square foot space with a photographer. Um, we just, we ended up being neighbors a few years ago, got to know each other and then went in on a larger space that we could share and shift, um, sort of the usage of depending on the week. And her name is Tamara Staples. I'll give her a shout out. She's an amazing photographer. Um, and she and I use the space. It works wonderfully. Um, you know, if I have a bigger event on the weekend, I spread out and use up more space. And if she's working there, um, editing photo work during the week, she can spread out. And Mm. so that's what I've been doing, um, for the last few years. Do you have, do you have a cooler there or are you, I mean, what are the issues that you deal with? I have a cooler. One of the issues was moving the cooler in, um, to the space. Uh, you know, coolers are large. I didn't, it's kind of like, it's kind of like moving a grand piano or something, isn't it? Or absolutely. Yes. Uh, I hired movers because I was too worried about damaging the door frame. It was going to be a really tight squeeze getting it through there. And, um, so yeah, I mean, there's like logistical issues like that. Um, the studio I was in previously actually had an industrial sink in the space, which was amazing. Major. Uh, Yeah. Major. And, we, Tamara and I, when we moved into this space, there was not a sink in the space. It was down the hall. And I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, this is just going to cost us so much time. Um, but it was a bit of a trade-off because, uh, the new space has cemented floors, which means it's a lot safer for us, you know, in terms of protecting the space and making sure that we're being good neighbors to people. Water spillage is totally inevitable in floral design, um, no matter how careful you are. So, um, before we had wooden, a wooden floor, if you can Mm. believe. So I actually had bought this really intense industrial greenhouse plastic. And I had, before I moved in, I laid this down across the entire space, um, just to create a liner for (laughs) the studio in case something happened. Right. Got water spill through and like, damage or destroy the painter's paintings. Um, <gasps> the artist, the artist beneath you. Oh my gosh, no pressure. Yeah. So in the new space, we don't have to worry about that. Um, and also, uh, we've gotten used to going down, down the hallway to the sink. And you know, for the most part, it's great. We have an AC. So in the summertime, um, we can cool the studio down, but I also have, it's a six foot cooler. So six foot wide, I think it's two feet deep. And then that's smart. I also have a regular fridge. So yeah. we use both of those um, in the warmer months. But, you yeah. know, sometimes when it's not that hot out, and certainly in the fall and through the winter, we're not using – sometimes we don't even need to use them. Um, yeah. Yes. So what's what's kind of a typical week like for you? If you had a, a, a wedding or two on Saturday, like when would you sort of start uh, the, the inevitable, like, climb to the weekend? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like I actually have a regular week, but, um, there are some things that sort of typically happen leading up to an event. So, um, as you know, I work primarily with local growers and their lists tend to come in the Thursday before the week of your event. So let's say, you know, your wedding was on a Saturday. Well, then basically 10 days prior to that, you'd be getting lists from local farmers. So going into that, you know, two week out space, I have a good idea of what it is I'm looking for and what I want to order. And I'm sort of waiting with bated breath for the list to come out. And 
we have a really strong sense of what the farmers we work with are going to offer because we've kept very detailed track of that over the years. So we have a reasonable expectation of what will be on their availability list, but happily they often have new things to offer every year. And sometimes they've figured out how to grow another succession of something and extend, Mm. um, you know, the field length of some, the harvesting length of something, um, or, or bump it up even. And so I know a lot of growers are always trying to, you know, just like the farmers with the tomatoes are trying to be the first tomato farmer at market. We have farmers who are trying to be the first person with cafe au lait dahlias or the first person with, you know, X, Y, Z. So, um, we're looking for the lists and then I'll place my orders usually between Thursday and Monday. Um, so there's a lot of kind of like email time, email work, computer work. I'm also, you know, that Friday, that Monday before usually solidifying, um, our timeline and what, um, our days are going to look like in the studio. So, you know, whether that's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or just Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or whatever the case may be, and getting out, um, you know, a detailed uh, timeline to the freelancers I'm working with, so that they know where they're popping in and plugging in, and then um, also to our clients, obviously, and our vendor partners. So that sort of occupies a lot of my time, like the Thursday to the Monday. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you might have a wedding that weekend too, right? Oh, yeah, we might also have a wedding. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like you know. there's a lot of overlap between planning right. for the next week and executing this week, I would imagine. Yes. It's like having like record turntables in your mind, you know, like you, you've got like one going and there's always a, you know, or I don't know what the metaphor would be. Like, <laughs> there's always another iron in the fire that you're having to watch and <laughs> not burn and do it all at the same time. But Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. Exactly. So right now, uh, I'm just curious when you say you, you have a kind of a core group of farmers that you're buying from, I, I probably know who some of them are and some of them have probably been on this podcast, but do you want to like, how, <laughs> how, where are they? What, you know, how far away are they from you? I just give us sort of a snapshot of, of that. Cause I think that climb that landscape has probably changed in five years. Yeah, it definitely has changed a little bit. Um, Let's see. I I would say for sure that the number of growers that we're working with in the Hudson Valley has grown. Um, But there are definitely a few farms that solidly offer. I guess we connect well with them. We're sort of in sync um, and they grow a lot of product and we work regularly with them. So those farms would be um, Rocksteady Farm and Flowers. They are in Millerton, New York. Yep which is maybe a two and a half to three hour drive north of Brooklyn. And then we have um, Treadlight Farm, Matt and Irene, um, and I should say Farmers Maggie and Dee are uh, the sort of cooperative owners of Rocksteady Farm and Flowers. And then Matt and Irene run Treadlight Farm. um, And of course, I'm going to forget the name of the town that they have just relocated their farm <laughs> to. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll find the link. We'll find the link. Yeah. Hours, two hours north, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're wonderful. And then um, we work with Vanishing Point Farm, Lily Bruder. Um, she's also sort of up there around Millerton. Um, Renee Bailey, who runs the Flower and Leaf. That's another uh, Copake roundabout area, um, Millerton area farm, um, growing a lot of gorgeous ornamentals and, um, perennials as well as 
uh, annuals that I love to work with her. And um, certainly there's Tiny Hearts Farm. Um, and they just had a big spread in Martha Stewart. Not sure if you caught that. Yes, yes. Yes. And they've been on the podcast and they're great Slow Flowers members. That's, that's, that's exciting to see. Yeah. So they're, you know, these farms are going strong. They've kind of just like how floral design is, is, is a hard one to make work. I think, um, in this way where you're super values driven and, um, you, you know, you're not just like sort of a, a factory of floral design. I think it's equally hard and equally easy to burn out as a flower farmer and a farmer these days. So I am so, so grateful that these folks have continued to dig in and, um, grow their businesses and it's beautiful mm. thing to watch. And yeah. And then we still have our try, you know, there's people who've been doing this flower farming thing for more than 30 years. Um, and so we still work with the river garden, which is up in the Catskills. That's Bernadette Kowalski. And she was one of the first vendors to sell at union square green market. Um, has one of the largest stands there and she sells dried flowers all through the winter. Mm. Um, uh, Rose Meadow farm, um, which is based out on Long Island is one of the last local rose farms in our region. Um, they grow a host of things, but they have always grown roses. Um, so yeah. And and then there's some others that are sort of been trickling up and growing and that I've been connecting with. Those are sort of my regulars that I tend to get deliveries from every week. Well, speaking of deliveries, that, that I was going to ask you about the whole kind of just transportation uh, infrastructure. I know mm-hmm. that I know in the past that's been cited as a barrier for farmers and fl- farmers in the country and florists in the city to connect. So, yeah. how has have how, how does this work? I mean, is it depend on the farm or is there sort of a model? Yeah, I think it does definitely depend on the farm because every farm has sort of its own. Um, collection of things that they have going on, whether that's a CSA and, or whether they have a retail shop or, um, you know, what, how, how frequently they want to be driving into the city. Um, but I think for many of them, it's obvious and unavoidable. Like the market is here and there's a hungry market for flowers. So, um, I think what's great to say now it, you know, it's been what five years since we've spoken, um, Back then, when we were having meetings um, with the Hudson Valley Growers Group, there was a group of us, both flower farmers and florists based in the city. We were having meetings regularly, maybe once or twice a year, to talk about these kinds of logistics. And of course, kind of the big conundrum was always transportation. And at that point, the farms weren't quite large enough um, and hadn't quite established either enough product or enough of a market in the city to make those runs to the city worth their while. And now, I mean, these farms are all making regular trips, which is huge. So their farms have scaled to the point where they're able to devote the labor and the time and the money to making those deliveries. Mm -hmm. Um, But also some farms are collaborating. So for example, the flower and leaf um, regularly puts their availability on the lists of Rocksteady and of Tiny Hearts. And so usually with Renee, with Renee's product, um, I get her product off of the Rocksteady truck or off of the Tiny Hearts truck, just depending. So I like that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, any, any way we can sort of reduce the fossil fuels consumption, the better. 
Um, so the farmers are trying to kind of build in their own efficiencies by collaborating, as yeah. which is back to that coopetition thing where, yes, they're technically competitors, but they know they've got to, you know, find intelligent, smart ways to pull it off and get those deliveries made. So it's neat that they can do that. Yeah, it's great. I think, I think there's positives for everyone involved, you know, for some, like, you know, if you have kids leaving the city for, and you have a really small operation, leaving this, leaving your farm and going to the city is a huge undertaking. So why not pay a small amount to another farmer to have your product brought in? And then, for the other farmer who's doing the shipment, then it's just more product to fill the truck and a little extra additional income. Um, you know, they're not making usually additional stops. So hopefully, I don't know the, the complete ins and outs of the economics of it, but um, I definitely benefit from it because it gives me access to more product and more variety. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Co- I guess, what was the word you used? Co-opetition? Yeah, that's a that's a Diane Sukavati from Jello Mold Farm word, which she might have gotten it from someone else, but I, I, that's where I learned it. Yeah, I like Love that. Um, so your season is um, limited by last frost and first frost, and, and obviously you mentioned dried flowers. Give me kind of a sense of what what your floral palette is and when do those seasons begin and end for you? I mean, we do weddings 12 months of the year. Certainly the local flower season kind of really starts to rev up, let's say in June, July, and it's going pretty strong through mid-October here. Um, some growers are starting to invest more in early, what we call early season ephemerals. So mm. things like fritillarias and, um, you know, unique species of uh ranunculus or um lily of the valley or Mm. a lot of these other bulb based flowers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even things like um anemones and um or some other ones we can think of you know hyacinths things that kind of come on like in fits and starts usually anywhere from the middle of april to middle of may um and I think maybe in a year or two hopefully there will be they will have enough volume that they will warrant a trip south with that material um but in the meantime there are some older commercial growers based in new jersey who um growing have established very established greenhouses where they grow um tulips and ranunculus and anemone sort of three tried and true winter flowers here right that we can that we can source through wholesalers on 28th street so van dyke farms um howtow and sons um, Battenfelds. These are three local farms that are in the region that help me, um, be able to do events in those off season months. And I'll generally accompany that material with things, you know, I will dip into sort of the California product at that time of year, things like eucalyptus Mm -hmm. and other foliages, um, just because, you know, it's there. And I guess it's, it's a bit of a compromise that I make. Um, which I'm still working on and I actively question all the time, um, you know, how much I really do want to step outside the regional product. Sure. But you mentioned the 28th street, uh, flower market in Manhattan. And that is, that does seem to be where, uh, the larger growers are bringing their supplies 
domestic growers from California or New Jersey, or I know that lots of product comes in from Holland and South America as well. I mean, that's sort of like your, your candy store, right? I mean, you, you're augmenting your, your farm direct purchases by shopping there uh, when you need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, um, we talked about, I talked about seasonality, but I'm, I'm also interested in your, your aesthetic, the Molly Oliver flowers aesthetic, which is, I feel is so, it's, it's not, it's not, yes, it's garden inspired, but there's something else. I don't even know how to articulate it, but there's some kind of wildness and uh, spirit in what you design. And I don't know how you want to describe your aesthetic. We'll show some photos, of course, that might help people. Um, but I feel <laughs> like there's always some unique element uh, that you're bringing into your bouquets or your arrangements. So they don't look, they don't look like something you've already seen on Pinterest. And I don't know, I don't know how you would do, how you pull That's that off. Interview, Deb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like it's interesting for me in the aesthetics department. It's where I'm the most insecure, the most um, questioning of my skills, even though I experienced so much it's just so fun sometimes to lose yourself in flowers. And mm -hmm. I feel a drive when I'm designing, um, you know, to place this here, to put that there. And it's a feeling. I think I really, you know, I have long admired designers like Sarah Rhiannon from Saipua and others, you know, just the way she plays with light and um, I've taken her workshop before. And, um, and then there's people who are just incredible with the technical piece like passion flower sue and um uh you know they've really figured out how to make these incredible um flower installations going foam free and and all of these awesome things um you know i don't know i mean i've only ever really described my style as you know nature inspired wild romantic i'm drawn to that like something that kind of feels natural and um untethered and mm -hmm. just easy and loose but also elegant and something that you want to stare at um, oh. but I'm, I'm really challenging myself I think now at this phase to um hone my aesthetics and hone the art form I've been so focused on the inputs in my business for so long um you know paying and that was really the driving that was the driving force for me in the beginning was creating a business that, you know, made as small a footprint as possible. And we're still so dedicated to that and trying to grow the ways that we are mindful about climate change. Um, but I also, in being able now to focus on Molly Oliver flowers, I am working more on just kind of understanding my craft and what I am drawn to designing and, um, yeah, just try to be, tr trying to be intuitive with it and getting mm -hmm. out of your head and hopefully helping others who are in the studio to do that as well and not feel encumbered or hindered. Um, but it's a constant practice of improvement and just looking at the people you admire, looking at their work, looking at art, looking at nature and, and it, and it grows. I think, you know, we can all see an evolution in our work as designers and Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's one of those, um, you want to get to the point where it's almost like you're one with the flowers and you're not overthinking it. And I feel like that's sort of, as you were describing your aesthetic, I thought, what, 
what came to mind was that the flowers almost tell you how to arrange them. Like if you're really, <laughs> if you're really in that kind of space where you're, mm -hmm. you love the product, there is so much joy around the ceremony or the couple or, you know, your, whoever you're designing for and you can be whole yourself, which I think you talked mm -hmm. about balance. Then you have this, it is it, reflected in the design. It's not tense and it's not tight. Um, so, uh, and I think also as a designer there, for me anyway, there's a tension also that I'm trying to work out between what your client wants to see and, and what they're drawn to and then what you want to create. And I think I do do and I would do my best work if I was able to um, really ask the client to just fully trust, you know, that we're going to work with your color palette we're going to work generally speaking with this type of aesthetic and it's going to be beautiful because we're going to really select the flowers that work best with this. And so I'm also practicing on that communication piece because that's what allows you in the creative space to do your best work. It's how you set it up with the client, mm. you know, noticing that more and more as I do this, it's always such a gift when somebody says, you know what, Molly, like I saw your work. I went to your website. I totally trust you. You're just like, ah, thank you. <laughs> you know? And then, and then it is just up to you and you're able to challenge yourself. Like how is this flower order I made going to translate into something that really works? And sometimes you have these moments you're like, wow, that totally came off amazing. And other times you're like, mm. and that's a challenge. It's a challenge I face with somebody who sourcing from farms that are not in a, you know, place that I can go visit and actually see this product. I have to order it off of a list and mm. I can't, you know, 28th street is amazing because sure, if you're going to go shop there, you can literally put these natural materials next to each other and you can see how this color and how this texture is going to work together. Um, but by and large, that product is not local. Right. So, um, when you're ordering off of these lists, again, you're sort of playing a game because even me as a person who farmed flowers for almost 10 years, I know what, you know, Celosa, Celosia, Silphid, I know essentially what that looks like. I know what it feels like, but as a grower every year, you know, your pH changes, the flower color tint is slightly different or for whatever reason, it, it branches in a slightly different way. And so different you never quite know you're ordering that thing, you know what it is, but then it comes to you yeah. and it may be in a different stage than you imagined. It may be more developed than you thought it would be. So, you know, these are all things that play into your ability to get that amazing end product, but it's interesting to, to think about it. And yeah, it's definitely a place. It's like a growing edge for me where I'm working on, both how communication influences the ultimate design work and also just my mindset in the studio and, and or <laughs> what, how that influences the work too. Yeah. It's so interesting because you have to be this, um, uh, kind of, I don't want to say powerful, but like this assertive or confident communicator with the client so that you can get to the point they need to be at and they need, they often do need guidance and, you know, kind of the expert telling them this is what's in season and this is, you know, what I think we should use. But then you have to pivot and communicate with the flower farmer 
to uh, hope that they, you know, hear your wish list and fulfill it. So it's 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 intense. Yeah. It's really an intense role that the that the pro, that the progressive kind of like you said um, values driven florist has to fill that occupy that space. Yeah, yeah, and it, as a person who I think generally tips towards. I don't know. I have certain like confidence or insecurity issues. I don't know if that's a common thing. I mean, we're human, so we have them. Yeah. But um, again, like I think my confidence and skill was always in farming and teaching and less so the design work, but um, I knew I wasn't bad. (laughs) (laughs) I was great. And so I have to work to on myself too, just to um, really own like the skill I have and set myself up to be able to, um, choose, choose the exact flower and sort of stage and all of those things and have those conversations with the farmers. So long as I've got the client ready to trust me, you know, yeah. that's, that's the groundwork that I have to lay. Wow. So. Well, you've mentioned that you did flower farm for 10 years and I know that that skill set is still at play in your design work. And the fact that you have been a grower has got to make you a stronger designer just just by virtue of your product knowledge and your appreciation for the habit form you know mm-hmm. life cycle of that plant so it's mm-hmm. it's in your bag of tricks and like you said you make mm-hmm. a mo- or toolbox I should say you may go back to it um but it influences everything you do anyway I think for sure yeah um you know farming was the thing I got into when I was in my early twenties, it was sort of like the answer for me when I was thinking about, um, environmental issues and, um, everything really Mm -hmm. just problems that we were facing in our society. It was like, we need to bring it home and we need to take care of our soil and we need to take care of each other. And farms, local farms seem like a place where we can start that really important work of, rebuilding equitable relationships with ourselves, with our communities and with soil. And so that was really the driving force that brought me into farming. And, um, and so again, moving into floral design, I talked about how inputs have always been at the forefront of my mind. It's like, you know, how do I build a business, however small that doesn't, make too uh, negative of an impact on the environment. So that's been a big focus for us this year is Mm. is just kind of trying to grow, trying to learn more, first of all, about all of these things we're hearing about um, in the news around, you know, the fate of recycling and the fate of composting and, um, and kind of where we fit in all of that and kind of pushing that foam free conversation further than just foam free. Um, and, uh, so yeah. we've been doing some things with that, but, um, yeah, that's still a huge piece of it for me. And, um, you know, as a farmer, you just, you kind of tend to fall in love with a lot of things. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say like, if there's one thing where that hinders me, it's like, I can get really excited about getting my hands on, you know, X, Y, Z flower again. But maybe when it's in the studio, I realize, Oh, okay. Maybe this version of calendula isn't quite right (laughs) and I just missed it and I wanted to order it I feel like I'm really trying to learn more about color you know how color works together right 
Yeah, I think having a photographer as a, a studio mate has got to influence how you see uh, color and light in a you know through a different set of eyes as well. That's got to that'd be a handy uh, kind of soak it, way to soak it up uh, as well. Yeah, Tamara, she's been wonderful. I mean, it's it's amazing sharing a studio space. Um, I'm sure for your listeners out there, whether you're you're a florist or a farmer, you know. Um, what happens in a workspace when you're working with flowers and it takes a really special person to <laughs> want to share space with you, uh, um, you know, cool. you, there's a lot of organic material that's accumulating and <laughs> yeah, I think that we're, I think we're pretty organized about it, but Tamara really celebrates what we do. She herself loves still life photography and the natural world and, she um she's taken to taking some pictures for us when we're sort of packing up or on our way out the door and we've you know we've developed different ways of celebrating each other what we do and she definitely supports me in that way well i wanted to go back to something that you referred to in terms of your training in your early 20s and um talk about your formative years uh because you studied at ucsc the uh center for agroecology and sustainable food systems at uc santa cruz right Mm-hmm. And you made a comment to me when I mentioned to you that we're moving, we're bringing the Slow Flowers Summit in 2020 to CASPIS. Am I saying that right? Yay. Oh my God. I love it. I finally got that acronym right, CAFSIS. Um, <laughs> you, you said, Deborah, you don't realize the diaspora of flower farmers that have gone to that through that program that have all moved on to do amazing things you're yourself included. And that really excited me. So many. And some of them are, you know, farmers that I purchased from. So Maggie Cheney, who is one of the co owners of Rocksteady farm and flowers. Um, and people, people, well, and people in other markets around the country as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> so I, when you told me that, remember I said, okay, Molly, that means you're going to come to the Slow Flower Summit and you're going to moderate a panel about the connections between flower farming and floral design or something. I don't know. We have to figure out what it is. So I'm, I'm, public, oh. I'm publicly, publicly inviting you to be one of our uh, featured speakers because this is such an interesting um, thread that weaves through so many uh, Slow Flowers members. And I know that, that, that UC Santa Cruz and, and CAFSIS has been a, didn't they just have their 50th anniversary or something? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like it's an overnight sensation. It's been this solid mm-hmm. educational center um, that in, has influenced <laughs> values based farming for a long time. I just think it's going to be fabulous. I'm excited about it. So I hope you say yes. So am I, and absolutely yes, I can't wait. <laughs> I, I look forward to bringing together some voices to talk about this and the ways that program influenced us um, and empowered us to grow flowers. Well, when you were when you were studying there, were you focused on food? I mean, it, where did the flower oh com- yeah piece I mean, come out? Yeah, yeah. When I when I decided to do that program, my main motivation at that point was. I had, I learned that I really loved learning how to grow vegetables. I had been working in a couple of community gardens in the Bronx and, um, really wanted to dig in deeper. And, um, I really understand like, what does it take to grow food at scale? Cause I was reading 
Fatal Harvest and, and lots of books about sort of why sustainable agriculture was what we needed to return to. And um, that's a program that practices and teaches sustainable agriculture. So, and at that point, it was really one of two. There was the farm school in Massachusetts and Caspis. Mm, um, mm. Otherwise, you could apprentice on an organic farm. And at that time, there were farms that had, you know, some had relatively structured apprenticeships, but they were really like work study. You know, you you were working every day. And Caspis was a little bit more like 70 30 like you were working to maintain the farms but maybe 30 percent of the time you were taking classes and reading and talking and going on tours and visiting so um definitely more of an educational focus there and i went with the idea of learning how to grow more vegetables that was what i wanted to learn and i wasn't thinking about flowers mm. um, but christophe bernau who was the down i believe it's still the down garden um, manager there, and also Oren Martin, who has been there for a long, long time, who manages the Alan Chadwick Garden, or what is affectionately called the Up Garden, <laughs> um, also was growing incredible flowers. And they were both teaching us, you know, right along with the vegetables, propagation and seed germination of flowers, um, so many amazing varieties, and how to trellis and train and weed and prune and deadhead and thin and pinch and where you don't pinch and all of that stuff we started to learn with um a really solid handful of cut flowers you know snapdragons dahlias um calendulas zinnias cosmos scabiosas um so so many straw mm -hmm. flower i mean we really learned a lot of flowers so um from there, I went and worked at a larger um, organic farm, um, family-owned organic farm in Watsonville, California, and I got to practice growing out and cultivating flowers at that farm, and um, I just really loved it. I think I always had a natural leaning towards the color. The color is, is just so attractive and exuberant and wanting to put things together and so it definitely really rubbed off on me and was unexpected. Um, mm. But I've, I've always, I always grew vegetables as well. And, um, and so, yeah, um, I, I credit Caspis for sure. <laughs> That's he neat. That cut flowers are a crop, you know, that they're, they're a niche crop, they're a specialty crop. And then Christoph with, um, you know, connecting me or teaching me about the ASCFG, the Association mm -hmm. for Specialty Cut Flower Growers and just widening our viewpoint to see cut flowers as a potential, you know, specialty crop that you could grow out. Right, right. That it's a legitimate form of agriculture um, cool. that feeds mm -hmm. people in a different way. And talk about sustainability. It can create a revenue source that's pretty amazing uh, for small-scale farming. And um, but back to the specialty crop reference it's it is a niche niche and um uh look what's happened you know even in the what probably 15 20 years since you've been there so it's blown up baby totally yeah <laughs> yeah and i yeah i hope to learn more about that too you know i think it, it is a niche crop and it's great and um and still like economic forces are what they are so it's a challenge i think a lot of us are still trying to figure out how to compete with, you know, 
these huge industrial flower farms that are still bringing in really relatively cheap product. Yeah, exactly. And make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're still here and you're, you're doing some exciting things. And uh, you mentioned you have some, something cooking that's coming up this fall. So tell us about that before we wrap up. Yeah. And I hope I'm not blowing, you know, too much information out there, but it's, I mean, it's not a big deal. It's um, I guess it's just one thing I can plug because I don't have any workshops coming up. Um, there's a dinner at the Brooklyn Grange, which will be a public event, a ticketed dinner. Um, to really celebrate pollinators and to do some information and education around pollinators. So um, I'll be doing the floral design uh, for that event and doing a type of design to really educate people who are there for the dinner about what types of flowers and plants are known to be pollinator food and and great things to plant in your garden. Um, But there will also be a partnership um, with Honey's, which is a restaurant in Bushwick that is really actually a maker of mead, which is, you know, an alcohol made from honey. And um, yeah, and so they're going to be catering it and it will be atop the Brooklyn Grange. So there will be all kinds of pollinators buzzing around um, (laughs) on the rooftop. And I think their beekeeping team is going to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the status with bees, uh, you know, the wild bee population um, or native bee population, Um, I am certainly not an expert in pollinators at this point. Um, I have a deep love and appreciation for many of them. Um, But I'm also learning still always about um, that situation and what we can be doing. So I'm excited. I'm excited to kind of dig in deeper um, to kind of getting uh, some reading in on on pollinators doing this event. I think it's going to be fun. When is the event? Um, That's September 8th. And I don't think the uh, ticket page is up yet. So just go to Brooklyn Grange, keep refreshing and looking at their um, ticketed events and it should come up at some point soon for this pollinator dinner. Oh, wonderful. And probably if people follow you on Instagram, you'll post it when it's available as well. Totally, yes. Absolutely. Well, I'm so bummed that I can't attend. I have a conference in Salt Lake City that week for the Garden Communicators, but otherwise I would be there. Because I'm so excited to tell you that my youngest son has now become a resident of Brooklyn. He's 22 and just just started his post-college career. So I might have to send him to uh, the dinner and uh, have him him come represent me because it sounds wonderful. And um, love to meet him. Oh, he's a great kid. And you will. You absolutely will. I adore you, Molly Culver. I'm so glad that we could have this conversation. I feel like I put you on the spot about the Sunflower Summit, but we did have one conversation uh, a while back, not so long ago. We did, and I'm totally down for it. It's already in my 2020 calendar. Okay, that's great. Well, we'll we'll work out the details. Uh, We're going to announce the... um, the program late fall, probably in November. So um, we're still kind of uh, just digesting the the evaluations and and the survey uh, responses yeah. from this year. So you know, a little bit of time, but um, yeah, I I'm counting on you, and I will we'll, we'll uh, work together to you know have a good mix of people that can join you. Uh, in the meantime, uh, congratulations on this new chapter of your life. I mean. I don't think you'll ever truly leave far- flower farming, but I feel like this is, whilst maybe you're sad and you grieve a little bit about the farm, the youth farm, this is like uh, exciting that you can kind of 
clear your deck and ha be open to new experiences that you just haven't had time to to enter into with with wearing mm -hmm. having two jobs now you can at least sort of focus on one mm -hmm. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I put that that very well but what I was trying to say is like maybe you have yeah. space to accept things that come your way that you don't even know about it's beautiful surprises yeah I think so I think so whenever we sort of close one door another opens and and that's good and there's some hardship in that and also good challenges and yeah I'm just appreciating each moment <laughs> that's awesome okay I'll talk to you really soon okay great thanks so much you're welcome thank you bye bye Thank you so much for joining today's beautiful conversation with Molly Culver. You may have picked up on the fact that I'm lobbying to bring Molly to the 2020 Slow Flowers Summit, which will take place at the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, CASFIS, as I finally remembered to pronounce correctly. As Molly is a graduate of that program at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I'm eager to involve her, and together we are brainstorming a panel on the influences of sustainable flower farming on the farmer florist movement. Watch this space and listen for news. I promise you'll hear more details soon. Our second sponsor spotlight focuses on Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnysseeds.com. And check out my past articles featuring the wisdom and voices of flower farmers. You can find the links to those articles in today's show notes at deborahprincing.com. Now, let's visit New Hampshire as the next stop in our 50 States of Slow Flowers series. Please meet Megan Williams of Gilsom Gardens. Gilsom Gardens was founded by Barry Williams and Barbara Kelly in 1993 and is now run by Dad Barry and daughter Megan. Megan explains, Possessing no formal education in horticulture, I chose the family business after much consideration of nearly any other profession. About the time I realized I couldn't picture my life without greenhouse season, I fell in love with cut flowers. What I lacked in classroom hours, I made up for in my unique life experience of growing up in my parents' greenhouses and countless hours spent roaming our woods and acreage. I have loved building upon and diversifying what my parents created, and I feel fortunate to be guiding the business forward into its next chapter, balancing seasonal nursery plants and specialty cut flowers for the wholesale market. You'll want to check out photos, links, and details about Megan and Gilsom Gardens flowers in today's show notes at deborahprincing.com. So let's get started. Hey, I'm so excited today to be visiting New Hampshire and bringing you along with me as we continue the 50 States of Slow Flowers series for 2019. And it's my thrilled to introduce you to Megan Williams of Gilsom Gardens. Hi, Megan. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for saying yes. And uh, we just had a little, little conversation before we started this episode about where is Gilsom Gardens. So let's start out by you telling me where you are located in the state and uh, a little bit about your business name. Sure. So um, Gilsom is a, a small town of about 
700 or so people. We're in southwestern New Hampshire. Um, the biggest city in our county is Keene. Um, so we're 45, about 45 minutes from the Vermont border and about 45 minutes from the Massachusetts border. So Okay, we can picture where you are then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Gilson Gardens is um, on your website. It says greenhouses and flower farms. So how does that kind of break out in terms of your product mix, if that's the right way to describe it, your, what you grow? Well, um, so we, my parents actually started growing bedding plants in the 90s. Um, so our, our business is focused and based around uh, bedding plants. Hmm. And we've been, that started out as a small retail operation um, on our property, and then it quickly transitioned into uh, growing commercially for a large grocery chain in the Northeast and um, a few different independent garden centers. Um, and we still do those same accounts now, um, though the level um, and volume of bedding plants has decreased in the last seven or eight years. Um, and I've been managing the farm for uh, five years now. I, I grow with my dad um and we added cut flowers into the mix the year that I started so this mm. is our fifth season growing cuts mm. did you persuade him to add cuts or is it something he'd been wanting to do well I persuaded him I actually um I floated around for a bit after college and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do and I came on board to manage the greenhouse season for him in 2015, I think. And I was actually working. So after that ended in June, um, because we only grow for the spring season. Okay. Uh, I had a part-time job at a, uh, a farm stand that primarily sold veggies, but they were exploring cut flowers. And that was my first exposure to that. And it sort of just ignited like, a, a curiosity that I ended up kind of really just diving right into um, because it did click to me that it would really make sense to, you know, just continue our season with, uh, you know, mm. a different product line mm -hmm. um, to kind of help, you know, keep us busy, I guess, for the rest of the season. You know, it's just a four month four months spent for us to grow uh, bedding plants. And, you know, that used to be enough, but now that we don't grow as much in the way of bedding plants, um, you know, it seems like it might be a, an interesting way to use our, our, you know, our existing uh, infrastructure. Yeah. That's so smart. It's like people who grow dahlias for cut flowers, but then have a separate business selling the tubers. It's like kind of balances out yeah. all of all exactly. that. Yeah. Everything you've invested in over the years, you can just yeah. get more well, in income huge, off of it. Yes. And a huge benefit um, is that we were already set up with eight, eight greenhouses and not all of which we actually needed to fulfill the demand for plants. So we already had, um, you know, the, the, the setup basically of heated structures, um, you know, so it was a little bit of a smoother transition, you know, as opposed to, starting something completely from scratch oh, with, with nothing. Absolutely. So that's interesting. So you um, you reallocated the use of some of the greenhouses for uh, for cut flowers production, then it yeah. sounds like. Yep. So we have eight wood frame uh, greenhouses that my parents uh, constructed in the late 90s, and um, one of which we, we've just 
finished retrofitting. So they're in in ground beds and we've added roll up sides and, and converted it so that we can produce cuts in that house. So. Oh, how cool. So what are you growing in, in, in under cover? And then also do you have field uh, allocation for, for annuals or whatever? Yeah. yeah, we have about, so for field space, we have about an, an acre. So it's very modest. Um, the greenhouses represent, um, you know, take up the most of the actual flat <laughs> land that we're on. Um, <laughs> and uh, so everything outside is pretty intensively planted. Um, but going back to the greenhouses, we do um, a spring season with all of the usual suspects, you know, ranunculus, anemone, poppies, uh, sweet peas. Mm. This year we trialed uh, dahlias in five-gallon pots. Um in a, in a separate building. So we've been able to offer dahlias here since I think it was the second week of June we started picking, which is really early for us. Oh my gosh. It's really <laughs> um, early for everybody, let alone New Hampshire. Yeah, wow. Yeah. 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 And zone five, you know, and to top it all off, we had a, an unreasonably cold and wet spring here. So anything we did pick felt really hard one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I've, been trying to transition a lot of my dahlia uh, growing for cut flowers inside just because there's a lot of different pest pressure associated with that crop. Um, and I actually really prefer working in the spring and the fall as opposed to the summer. So I've been putting a lot of my effort into those specific time frames um, because my main, main uh, sales channels uh, are wedding forests. So mm. I try to have the best mix of product when they're the busiest. That's so cool. How big are these greenhouses? So uh, eight, all eight structures are identical. They're t- about 25 feet wide by 100 feet long. Wow. Um, and so I think I think it works out to, I think it's just shy of 19,000 square feet. Um, all of, in, in all. Um, mm-hmm. And each building has a, a heater in it. Um, we're also set up to heat with uh with an outdoor wood boiler, though we haven't been um, doing that the last few years because that's a lot of work throughout the winter, keeping a, a furnace stock. <laughs> it's like Little House um, on the Prairie or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was here for a little while. Thankfully, the price of propane came down and we were able to take, a, you know, not yeah. have to work so hard through the winter because we, you know, the whole rest of the year is, is so much effort. But yeah, the um, all, all eight structures, um, are heated and six of which have, uh, benches in them. So we're mostly set up for, um, bedding plant production. And then one, one house is pretty much dedicated just to propagation. So we actually seed start a lot of our own material and we only buy in plugs, uh, for vegetative material. So. Wow, that's exciting. It's really interesting what you said about trying to concentrate on the spring and the fall, because those are probably the um, seasons where it's harder to get local product in New England. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure fall is, you know, it's just what, when does the frost hit? And are you able to grow past that, right? Yeah, yeah, we have, um, our, we've had frost actually as early as Labor Day, though that's actually not typical for us. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's the last, you know, it's at the very end of September or early October, we have about 120 frost free days mm. in we're, we're technically zone five B, but it's, it, 
it gets pretty cold here. <laughs> Wait, say that again. Um, How many frost-free days? A hundred and... I think 120. Wow. It's, we're, I think it's because our, our uh, last frost is about May, mid-May. Um, and so we go through about, you know, the, the end of September, early October, if we're lucky. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been a challenge just figuring out, you know, because most of our energy and effort goes into our spring season with plants. So figuring out how to balance that with cut flowers has been a challenge. So each season has been a little bit different. And over time, I'm, I'm trying to hone in on, um, very specific crops at very specific times of year because it's really challenging to get your field planted on Mother's Day when you're trying to ship, you know, a thousand hanging baskets out. <laughs> oh my goodness. Among right. Other things. Right. It's so interesting. Well, so. you're, um, I love it all. It's, it's just this listening to how your mind is working in terms of like, you must have this perpetual calendar in your, in your head, just trying to I do. stagger all yeah. these crops. <laughs> Creating timelines is, you know, the biggest, the biggest challenge. And of course, trying to factor in for gray days in the fall or spring that might throw things off is also challenging. But, you know, I, I really, I love spring and fall crops the most. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I just don't, I find myself drawn to those times of year because I, I think mostly because it's the most pleasant time to be working outside. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so knowledgeable and you've, you said you've only been doing this for five years, but I, I'm guessing a lot of this knowledge came by osmosis growing up on this farm with your parents yeah. and working. Did you like have to earn allowance money working in the, in the greenhouses as a kid? Sometimes, yeah. Um, we, you know, whenever there was extra hands needed, depending on, you know, what was going on, it was definitely expected. In the very least, you know, when I was old enough to be cooking dinner or doing dishes or helping out around the house, it was expected because this was our busiest time of year. I mean, I didn't, when I came into it, I didn't realize how much I actually did know, mm -hmm. you know, because it, it's such an overwhelm, you know, just growing anything for sale is such an overwhelming endeavor, you know, and, um, but I, I learned quite a bit from my parents and my mother who was the, uh, you know, basically the grower here, mm. you know, taught me all about, you know, like she handed me her seed starting schedule and, you know, mm. handed down her basically what she called her Bible, you know, just her production schedule of, which, how to start, which seeds and at what time and how, you know, how she did everything to accommodate, you know, the, the customers that we had at the time. So. Wow. That's so special. I love that. What did you go to college for? What did you think you're going to be when you grew up? I was always, I always thought that I was going to end up in, um, counseling or therapy of some kind. And I, I actually, I didn't even finish my bachelor's. I went to school for here locally at Keene State for two years. And, you know, I got halfway through, I was paying for it myself, you mm -hmm. know, working part, part time, living at home, you know, trying to do it all. And I just realized that there really wasn't, I, I really wasn't called to it. And I just didn't, there was no degree program. I really felt was going to make me a more valuable, you know, employable person. And I just felt, <laughs> I felt like I didn't really have any business being at college and making that investment unless I knew what I was investing in. Yeah. So that's, 
that's what caused me to take a step back. And that's when I shifted my focus to the family business and, you know, trying to see that through. And, and you know how beneficial plants and flowers are to people's mental health and wellness. So in some way you're continuing that, that good work. It's just just (laughs) different environment. Well, um, I love I love your story. And before we started recording, you mentioned to me that you are primarily selling wholesale. So before we wrap up, can you talk a little bit about who is, what is your market and, and who is buying uh, the flowers from Gilsum Gardens? Sure. So um, for bedding plants, we work with um, a grocery chain here in the Northeast and also serve a couple of different uh, independent garden centers. Um, and so that's just for the spring season. So mm-hmm. we ship plants for about six weeks, um, basically the month of May and maybe the first week of June if we're lucky. And are those um, like, um, most- what kind of, be- I mean, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like the bedding plants that I would buy at my local garden center, like hanging baskets, stuffers yeah, and that sort of thing. It's a little of everything. Um, we do, we grow about um, anywhere between 1,500 and 1,800 different hanging baskets. Um, most of that is 10-inch combination baskets um Incredible. and then we do veggie plants herbs uh and then the whole you know just anything that you can think of wanting as a bedding plant we grow it basically mm-hmm. as far as ornamental um mm-hmm. you know annuals uh and a lot of that is either in four inch pots or or 10 20 flats you know six packs or sure four packs um And so we sit, you know, we sit down, we talk with our grocery store where they actually put up a small greenhouse in their parking lot. So it's sort of like a flagship store for us. Like we, we're the exclusive, uh, you know, supplier of that little greenhouse for six weeks. And it's become, you know, something that's well known and looked forward to in our community to, to buy plants there from us. That's Um, wonderful. I can just, I just love it. It's like, you don't have to own a retail store. They just give you a retail environment. Yeah. That's that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. For that period of time. (laughs) We actually inherited the entire um, account from the people that my, the retiring couple that my parents bought the business from. And since then the, the grocery store has changed hands a number of times, but we have, kind of grandfathered in this, uh, you know, this little greenhouse temporary structure that they put up and they retail our plants for us. That's so, so cool. Um, yeah. And then um, for cuts, we primarily sell to florists. And right now it's, I think it's like a 50-50 split between uh, retail florists and then um, just studio designers. Um, so I do a, a delivery route here in New Hampshire and I occasionally go down to Massachusetts a little bit. I'm starting to branch out a little more um, to, you know, one, once, sometimes twice a week during peak field season. Um, and I, you know, I basically distribute all of my cuts myself right now. Wow. So you're kind of a one woman show on the cut side. Yeah. Grow, <laughs> yeah, like I am. growing six days a week and, and delivering one day a week, I bet. I mean, it's that's yeah, a lot. Yeah. We added in, we, we've had one full-time person helping me the last few seasons. We always have two full-time during, uh, from fi- basically Valentine's Day until the first week of June. Um, and then we've grown so much in the way of cut flowers. We're actually, we actually have, are keeping that second full-time person on, um, 
all the way through September. So, you know, just because there's a lot more work to do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, wow. So there, there are two people helping with the planting and the weeding and the watering, you know, it's not, it's not all me, right. I, you know. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> so what is your route? Like geographically, how, what radius are you, are you delivering to? Well, right now I travel up to 50 or 60 miles. Um, you know, we're in a fairly small, somewhat rural town um, slash county. Uh, so I have to, I really have to, you know, go and find <laughs> these people. It's, there's not, you know, an immediate uh, just pool of, you know, forests that are in my backyard. So right. I, not I, like a major I metro travel. market or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done a little bit, you know, I've sold a little bit to the floral reserve in Providence this year and I've been bringing that material down myself. So we have been branching out a little farther. Um, but as far as just florists right now, it's been pretty much Southwestern and then central New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this year we were considering um, going over towards the seacoast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for another day uh, each week. And that'll really just depend on, you know, that's really weather dependent at this point, just seeing, you know, how things shape up. And if we have the, we definitely have the interest, but if we have the abundance this year mm-hmm. to make that happen. Wow. Megan, this so. is so exciting. And, and it's just like, you're kind of at the f- forefront of demand blowing up and you just have to catch up to that demand with your Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've always thought of New England or specifically New Hampshire as being pretty progressive in terms of understanding and supporting local food. Is is that the case and is it spilling over into flowers? I think so, um, though I, it's kind of hard to measure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, as far as food, there's definitely been... Uh, a much bigger awareness for us on this side of the state. We don't have as much um, tourism. um, So, you know, things are a bit quieter and slower. You know, it feels like it takes longer for trends to reach us over here. Um, So as far as, you know, the interest in local flowers, I would say that it's getting there, but there's definitely been a lot of education uh, required (laughs) To make that happen, you know, not just with the general customer base, but also um, with florists, you know, there's just, they're not used to it being approached by local growers and saying, and have, and being asked, you know, what, what can I grow for you? What do you want to use in your, you know, wedding designs? Mm. So, and and they, um, they obviously know beautiful product when you show it to them. It's just what, oh, yeah. whether they go the next level down to say it's beautiful and it's local and I can use that to enhance my own branding and my own, um, you know, values or however I market to, to couples. So I feel like you're providing them that wonderful gift. Yeah. They just have yeah. to use it. And, yeah. And I actually have, I have two florists now that are really putting a lot of momentum behind you know, using the word local in their branding. Mm. Um, so that's been really, that's been really energizing to be a part of, um, because obviously as a grower, I can see the difference, but, you know, having other people who believe so much in what you're doing that they want to, you know, impart that upon their customer base and, you know, ultimately, be able to say, Hey, like we, we've been sourcing our material here, you know, in New Hampshire, you're supporting a New Hampshire farm, 
you know, like that's I major. feel like that's really powerful. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm excited to see where this takes you. And I'm so happy we got a chance to talk about Gilsom Gardens and what's happening in Southwest New Hampshire. I'm just, I hope I get to visit sometime soon. It just sounds like a beautiful place. Yes, you absolutely should. <laughs> um, well, anything else I, uh, you want to mention before we wrap up? I know you're going to share photos with our, our listeners. So we'll get those, I'll track those down from you. I know, you know, I think we've touched on everything, but yeah, I, I'm, I will definitely share some of our best photos from this year. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? I could ask, I could ask you questions for another hour. You are, it's so <laughs> fascinating to hear what you're doing. And this is just like a little snapshot to, you know, whet people's interest and hopefully they can find and follow you on social media and sort of see what happens during the season. Um, yeah, yeah. Impressive. Thank you so much, Megan. I really am really glad we could um, visit New Hampshire today with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Deborah, for having me. You bet. for joining me today as we visited Brooklyn's Molly Culver and New Hampshire's Megan Williams. I learned a lot and I appreciate hearing both of them talk about the important markets for local and seasonal flowers and how they're involved. Molly is in an influential marketplace and her devotion to the slow flowers movement is essential to the cause. Megan is at the forefront of her region starting to bring local flowers to a marketplace that has forgotten or perhaps not had access to them prior. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our final sponsor spotlight today goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. And even though we're up to our ears in summer flowers like gladiolas and dahlias and allium, in my case, we're already starting to think about our tulip order for fall. And you can visit Longfield Gardens to get more details about what's available. Visit them at longfield-gardens.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than a half a million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.